Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. You join me in a conversation with Stephen Brown, Director of Preventive Emergency Medicine. It was his job title that piqued my interest. You are the Director of Preventive Emergency Medicine. Uh, That's correct, at the University of Illinois Hospital and Health Sciences System. So tell me a little bit about the Director of Preventive Emergency Medicine. What is that all about? In the emergency department, I think we're beginning to become aware that the social determinants play a very important part of what drives cost and utilization for patients that repeatedly come back to the emergency department. So in the past, you know, I became, I did a career transition in 2005 and ended up at the University of Chicago Emergency Department at Inner City ER. And our overcrowding scores that we had would off the charts sometimes. And I became interested in what was driving these individuals to come back repeatedly. And there were opportunities, I thought, to be able to better manage these individuals, to understand them a little better, and to help find the right kind of care for them. And so at the University of Chicago, the chair at the time, Terry Van de Hook, who I work for here, we created a director of preventive emergency medicine. So, you know, I, I tend to think as social determinants is everything below the waterline. And what my perspective was so much different than what the doctors were the seeing. So, you know, like a doctor would see a woman coming in, 43-year-old African-American female that lives in a neighborhood that repeatedly for cocaine intoxication. There was something driving that, though. It was just beyond somebody getting high. And so I'd often have a conversation with her and I'd say, you know, knowing a lot of lady, uh, women like you, I've seen this happen again and again. And generally what my other people, my patients tell me is they're having these intrusive thoughts that they can't control and it's very distressing to them. And so the only way they can do to manage that is they take drugs or alcohol. And, you know, they, they have that moment of revelation like, oh my God, that's exactly what's happening to me. And so when you dig down to it, the root cause is not cocaine intoxication. It's not somebody had a heart attack because they were taking cocaine. It's because that lady had been repeatedly sexually molested by her stepfather when she was 13 years old. It was undiagnosed PTSD. So my perspective as a social worker was much different than the way that doctors were approaching us. And so I undertook a way to kind of educate providers in the ED, anybody that listened to me, whether, you know, to show them that there were other things going on in, in somebody's life. What would be the kind of thing that could be done for somebody like that lady? Well, you know, there's, there's certainly a shortage of mental health resources. We could try to get her into counseling. You know, now we've got the adverse childhood events scoring. And just having somebody score that gives them a little bit of insight into their lives. Oftentimes, the way that people respond to these things is they try and push it out of their minds. And they don't fully appreciate the impact that that episode in their life has on their mental health. So just even having somebody have some insight, giving them an adverse childhood event, and then having them reflect on it actually has some, uh, actually has some therapeutic power to it. But there's many things we could do with individuals like that, too. So generally, what I would do is not so focus so much on the substance abuse, but what was driving the distress. The substance abuse eventually will resolve itself if you take care of their psychological distress, what's driving it. And how can that be fixed? I mean, if I'm an emergency physician, I'm thinking I'm going to see this person several times over the next few months. And we, we understand that they have this issue and the background issue. How would that come into play? How will that make a difference to that patient in terms of their 
experience of healthcare or indeed the doctor's experience of that patient? Right. So a lot of it is just getting physicians to recognize the value of digging underneath to get to the repeat visits. You know, I started this Better Health Through Housing program here. And what we found is kind of an unintended consequence is our provider satisfaction scores went up. Emergency physicians have some of the highest burnout rates in the industry. And a large measure of that is because, you know, what causes burnout is when you can't control the things the things that are around you. You can do the best medical care in the world, but people keep coming back repeatedly. But when I can do things for them where they're actually getting to some of the structural violence that have driven some of the utilization, the structural things underneath that cause people to repetitively come back to the emergency department, they derive some sense of satisfaction out of that. And so our provider satisfaction scores has come up, has gone up as a consequence of it. Now, what can we do with individuals like that? It's not only what you can do in that moment, but you also have to have what's now being called structural competency. So what we generally focus on, this is, it's where healthcare always goes, is let's make better healthcare. But, you know, we know only 10 to 20% of what affects health has anything to do with the delivery of healthcare. It's everything else. It's where you grew up, the circumstances, the trauma you might have experienced. Those, that 80% is really what drives uh, utilization of healthcare, and especially in the inner city. So let's get to the structural things that are uh, causing these folks to not get the services they need. So a lot of it, it, what we're trying to do in emergency medicine, the American College of Emergency Physicians has just started a social emergency section. Uh, and part of that is just educating providers about the social determinants, but also really getting them to advocate to uh, end a lot of this structural violence that causes this repeat behavior to emergency departments. So uh, the idea that we need more affordable housing uh, here in the city of Chicago, we need more what we call low barrier crisis shelters because we have so many individuals with severe mental illness that have been kicked out of traditional crisis shelters. We need to take that on as our responsibility in emergency medicine now. In Australia, we have exactly the same situation. Here, if you walk along the street, uh, Mel- Burke Street, which is in the heart of Melbourne, you will find a bunch of homeless people whose problems are appear to be intractable. And I'm trying to understand how, you know, from an emergency physician, emergency department point of view, how you can influence things that are very much, as you say, social determinants of health. It's about poverty and child abuse and illiteracy and many other things that lead people into these uh, awful situations. Yeah. And I think you start with where, you know, the American healthcare is mostly tertiary care. We've got great sick care, but we don't prevent people from getting there, right? And we need to flip that on its head. So, but let's start with tertiary care. We know that if we put somebody into housing, their healthcare costs and their utilization will plummet. And the thing we're working on here is that we believe, as the data shows, is beginning to show that the solution may be cheaper than the problem. And that's very attractive to policymakers, to politicians, that if you understand there's an ROI, uh, that if you invest a penny, uh, you're going to get a pound back um, later down the road. So that's attractive. But then then it begs the question is, how do you get to prevention in the first place? You know, the, thing, the unique thing of what we're doing here is uh, homelessness you can see from far, far away before it ever happens. We know that folks that have severe mental illness or have struggled with substance abuse or 
like 30% of the kids that age out of our foster care system will end up homeless. There are factors in somebody's lives that you can see coming. So we're, we're now trying to embrace a prevention strategy. So for example, in credit data, we're talking to some of the credit agencies. It's a little scary how much information they have on American consumers here. They actually say there's some predictive value to the color of a car that you choose, apparently a red car. I don't know what that means, but apparently a red car is some kind of, you know, they all kind of look, give me this look like, uh-huh, do you have a red car? My point in all of this, though, is that generally what we would see in homelessness, especially with women and children, was it was a struggling mom, two kids that had a job, but then the car, and, you know, might have a boyfriend or something like that. They might, the boyfriend might break up. And so the baby, baby, baby dad's daddy's gone. And then the car breaks down. And now the lady's having difficulty getting there, let alone with all the childcare responsibilities she's got to the point where eventually she's let go at work because she can't get there on time any longer. She doesn't have the money to get the car fixed. She's living right on the edge. She's got a lot of financial strain. Then, so she loses the job and, you know, it's almost impossible to find another job because now she doesn't have childcare. And then three months down the road, she gets an eviction notice because she can't pay her rent. And another three or four months, she gets evicted. She ends up on her sister's couch and another month or two goes by and the sister and her have an argument and she ends up in the emergency department with two bags of clothes and two kids in tow. That is a very long stream thing that you can see coming. And so we want to get to a prevention argument that says, as soon as somebody has these risk factors, we want to know about them so that we can actually help them much earlier in that cycle and not have to get to the catastrophic event of being evicted. Because Bad things happen when people get evicted and they're homeless. How do you persuade politicians to take this seriously? Because, you know, for a politician to unveil a new CAT scanner or MRI, that wins votes because there's lots of photo opportunities. Yeah. For them to say, I'm going to do something about people who are homeless, that doesn't quite resonate with voters, does it? No, it doesn't. Uh, it can. You know, I think where the visibility of it I get it all the time. What can I do? You know, both from the individual encounter, but from also from a societal perspective. And you have to consider viewpoint of people along a, a political spectrum. And so for many people, they'll do it because they think it's compassionate and the right thing to do. You see these people living in just horrible conditions and, you know, they, they end up dying 25 years younger than the average American. But there's also an economic argument here, too. It's the solution is cheaper than problem. It's it, these folks are incredibly expensive to us as a society. So here, for example, in the state of Illinois, we consider a lot of chronically homeless. So a small portion of the homeless are super utilizers of healthcare systems. And so they'll have healthcare costs anywhere between two and a half to 160 times the average patient cost. I had one gentleman here who had deceased, who was deceased before I met him. But he had, for the previous three years, he had annual healthcare costs over $800,000 each. So that costs the state, right? And what we understand is that homelessness and particularly episodic and chronic homelessness follow what we call a power law distribution. So a very small percentage drive most of the cost in utilization. So in the state of Illinois, we're a Medicaid expansion state here. 5% of our patients consume half the state budget for Medicaid. I'm just very, very surprised it's beginning to shift our conversation a little bit instead. American healthcare has exceptional individual healthcare, but we don't think in terms of taking ownership of a population. 
But when you think about that, it's starting to drive conversations about how can we bend the curve here? But we need to look at these individuals and there's lots of little cohorts in there, but we could manage them much better if we just focused on their utilization because there's, they got there for a reason. It's not some random event why they're so expensive to the healthcare system. And it's going to be a combination of better healthcare, but also prevention. So for example, I mentioned adverse childhood events. So for what we know is one of the most expensive conditions of any state Medicaid agency is preterm birth, uh, premature birth. And there, you, if you took a medical model of it, you'd only find one little thing that would pop that would say, oh, we need to pay attention to people with this particular. And it's in, in women, it's cervix length. If it's shorter or longer, I don't remember, but there's a slightly elevated risk of a preterm birth. Now, that's the way healthcare thinks about it. But if you look at it and say, all right, that this is now a teen mom, for every point that an A score goes up, and it's a 10-point scale, the probability of a preterm birth goes up 18%. So by the time you've got somebody with a score of three or four, you need to be paying attention and doing early intervention with that woman when she becomes of gestational age, because there's a very high probability she could end up having a preterm birth. From your perspective, you, you, see a lot of, you see a lot of societies, casualties coming through your doors. What would you like to see happen sooner rather than later? to stem the tide that is, you know, chronic and complex conditions. If I could wave my magic wand, if I were king for a day kind of thing. Yeah, yeah we'll make you king for a day. And that's no problem. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the thing about it, you know, I, I look longingly to our folks in Europe where there's a little bit more collective DNA. This is the only country in the world, I believe, that maybe it's the same in Australia, but where you're not required to give a shit about your mellow, fellow man, excuse my language. and. And yet there's this, you know, half the population here says, yeah, we do want to care. And many of the rest say, no, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm not compelled to do anything for this person. In fact, I'm going to hoard all the money I have and I feel no personal responsibility to helping anybody else. I wish we could get more towards understanding that people would be happier and would experience a lot more joy just by helping other people and to prevent the next tragedy. I don't think it's true that Americans don't care for each other. I think that they very much do. But you're right. We need to move to a society where we, we see that as being in our interests for that person right. to do well. Right, right, yeah? right. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think that's what I'm saying, yeah, yeah. Okay. So if, you are, if you're giving advice to a healthcare professional, whether they're in Baltimore or, uh, you know, the US or, or, or Brisbane in, the, in Australia what would that advice be? It's more complex than you think. It's, I think the next phase of healthcare reform for us is looking broadly at at these structural things that drive utilization and lead to poor outcomes. I think we have the opportunity here in the city of Chicago to break the cycle of generational poverty because we've got the data to understand which of the kids being born here in the city are the ones that are most at risk for not being able to get ahead. You know, if you look at developmental psychology, we, we know in the United States that educational, that socioeconomic status is a linear relationship to your ability to achieve is the ability to the kind of parenting skills that are given to that child. So 
there's lots of evidence to suggest that children that come from middle to upper class have are ready for school. They've had the kind of parenting and this kind of intensive interaction with their parents, and not only in quality and quantity, but in quantity that makes them prepared for school. So we know from the Char- Children's Harlem Promise Zone in Harlem, New York, which had a 95% cradle to college rate, they did things like parenting classes and how to have really great interactions with their children so these kids were ready to go to school, right? We need to be looking more towards putting more money in prevention, especially in early childhood. As a, as a, and we need to do that as physicians and influencing our policymakers so that we have more of those types of resources. You know, we, you see these, you know, the, the, the term 30 million words, and it's actually more like a million words. They've proven this out. It's the deficit between lower socioeconomic status and higher socioeconomic children, and the number of utterances between a parent and child, that's the deficit between zero and four. And just, you know, in a period of rapid developmental cycle where the brain is a sponge, and the more you wired up, the more complex interactions you're going to have, and that kid's going to be much more capable of being able to absorb information, to, to learn social cognition and learn emotional intelligence. And those kids, those kids are ready to learn, you know, and they're wired up to learn by them. And if we wanted to end generational poverty, if I were king for a day, that that is the one thing I would focus on here. I'll see kids in the emergency department all the time. And you just see like these kids with a deficit. You see kids that have an abundance and it's markedly different. And they could be from the same neighborhood. That was a perspective from the director of preventive emergency medicine at the University of Illinois Hospital and Health Sciences System, making the case that in order to improve outcomes in the emergency department, we need to focus on prevention, that people's lives often take a turn for the worse, and that this can be predicted. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at www.journalofhealthdesign.com dot com